Welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight until today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lashley. And our guest today is Rebecca Siegel. Rebecca Siegel is the author of To Fly Among the Stars, The Hidden Story of the Fight for Women Astronauts. And this is a book that's written for middle grade to young adult audience, although I certainly don't believe it reads that way. Uh, And in it, Siegel weaves together the well-known story of the Mercury 7 alongside the contemporaneous story of the virtually unknown Mercury 13. Rebecca, for the listeners who might not know, give us a rundown on the Mercury 7 before we talk about the Mercury 13. Sure, I would love to. So the Mercury 7 were the first astronauts selected to be part of Project Mercury, NASA's first crewed spaceflight program. And this happened back in 1958 to 1963. And it was a pretty straightforward exploratory space program designed to send a human up into space, orbit that human, bring him back alive, and then in the process, learn some things about humans and how they could tolerate spaceflight. You know, is spaceflight survivable? What is it like? What does it do to a pilot? You have to remember, this was our first space endeavor. And so when NASA set about finding its first class of astronauts, it was a really big challenge. And they were sort of inventing the wheel here. We didn't, they didn't know exactly what characteristics would make a great astronaut. But for a variety of reasons, it was decided that the first class of astronauts should come from the nation's pool of active duty military test pilots. And beyond that, um, they needed to be test pilots who had jet flight experience and also have a degree in engineering. And then there were some other requirements. They had to be of a certain height and weight. They couldn't be too big. The capsule, the Mercury capsule was quite small. And so what NASA's Astronaut Selection Committee did was they started looking through all these pilots, asked for volunteers, The people who said, sure, I'll try sitting on top of a rocket were then asked to go through a series of um, screening tests that were designed really just to rule out anybody who wasn't in perfect health and didn't have any kind of emotional or mental baggage that might not make them an ideal candidate for spaceflight. So the way that this happened was these test pilots were invited out to a clinic in New Mexico, the Loveless uh, Medical Clinic, and they were subjected to this grueling, brutal series of tests. And these weren't just like vision tests and hearing tests. This was an ordeal. You know, they had ice water injected into their inner ears to test how they would react to vertigo. They were electrocuted. They had some electrical wires inserted into the muscles in their arms and they scientists watched what happened when they shocked them. They had to sit in hot rooms. They had to take isolation tests. Essentially, the goal of this process was to make sure that the people selected at the end of the process were were supermen. You know, that was something that um, one of the people involved in the testing said. He said, we were looking for ordinary supermen. And so in the end, these seven guys were chosen, soon called the Mercury Seven, and they were these white, handsome, married American heroes. These guys like John Glenn and Alan Shepard. And, you know, they really fit the bill for what a hero would look like at the time in America. But what's really, really interesting is while all of that was happening, two of the guys that were involved in the selection of the Mercury 7, they were thinking about the idea of women astronauts. And as much as I would like to say it's because they were these progressive feminists, I don't think that that is necessarily the case. These guys were thinking about women because of a very practical reason. Women tend to be lighter than men. They tend to weigh less. They tend to be shorter. And they also tend to consume less oxygen, water, and food, which 
ultimately added up to a lighter payload for the rockets, which at the time, in these early, early days at NASA, that was a big deal. So these two guys, an Air Force guy, Brigadier General Donald Flickinger and Randy Loveless, they came together and they said, well, let's let's look at this. And so out of their work, um, an informal research uh, program was sort of developed. So Flickinger started it. Air Force shut it down after a hot second and Loveless inherited it. What happened was they looked through the pool of American female aviation and they selected the best, you know, the women who had the most flight hours, the women who did the best at air races, the women who had achieved the most aviation records, basically women who are really prominent within the field. And they invited them out. 19 female aviators went to the Loveless Clinic and they did the exact same tests that the men had done, you know, about a year earlier. And what is really interesting about these women is that they performed very well during these tests. So at the end of a week of this really grueling, uncomfortable testing, 68% of the women finished their testing with a medical grade of no medical reservations, which really just means they're in perfect shape. So that was 13 women. And that's who we're talking about when we talk about the Mercury 13. What I think is interesting to note is that the men who, as I explained earlier, the men who did the same testing were really the cream of the crop, right? Like the best of the best. They did these same tests and only 56% of them managed to squeak through with that same no medical reservations grade, right? So a greater number or a greater percentage of the women got that high passing mark. So that doesn't mean that they were necessarily going to be better astronauts, but it displays something about perhaps a skewed perception of the military test flight community compared to the female civilian flight community. Beyond that, you know, the testing administrators commented on the different temperaments that they noticed between the two groups. So the men whined, they joked, they, you know, pulled pranks on each other and generally were a little bit of a pain. And the women were very stoic and calm and goal-oriented. And I think that's sort of reflective of one community who was perhaps used to getting chances to do cool stuff and another community that knew that this was a big deal and they needed to really um, do their very best. So these 13 women passed this first set of tests and it looks like, I don't know, maybe they could possibly keep going. Let's see if we could, they could maybe even be considered astronaut candidates. So one woman, Jerry Cobb, goes on. She completes all of the astronaut candidacy tests that are roughly equivalent to what the men under had gone through. And she passes. Two other women follow in her footsteps. They take the psychological tests and I should note that while the men did an isolation test at Wright Pat that was like a two, three hour stint of sitting in a dim room to see if they could handle being alone, uh, the women did something called a sensory deprivation tank. They got into a pool that was filled with water that had been heated to the exact temperature of their bodies. And then testing administrators turned off all the lights. They were in a lightless, soundless room, and they were just left in there to see how long they would last. And these women lasted a very long time. Jerry Cobb was in there for nine hours and 40 minutes. Wally Funk was in there for 10 and a half hours. And so this is just sort of indicative of the fact that they were willing to do anything and they wanted to try their very best to show that they could handle whatever stresses they were put under if it got them closer to their goal of pursuing spaceflight. So in the end, just as this project is gaining momentum and these women are showing their promise and things are looking kind of exciting, NASA catches wind of it and 
the whole project gets shut down because NASA was never interested in searching for women. This was always a privately funded endeavor. And significantly, none of the women could meet NASA's requirements. None of them were jet pilots. None of them were military test pilots. One was an engineer. But what's important to note about that is none of them could meet those requirements because women were not allowed to fly in the military at the time. So it was this really skewed and unfair system. And the women who were participating in this privately funded testing program knew that the odds were not in their favor, but they tried nonetheless. And they came pretty shockingly close to at least being considered possible candidates. Of course, it didn't happen. So it's a it's a tragic story, but it's also so inspiring. And I also think it's like one of the most sensational things I've ever heard. And I can't believe we don't all know this. <laughs> And that kind of leads into the the next question. There's really, really limited scholarship at play here. Why do you think the story of the Mercury women has consistently been discounted uh, or even better ignored? So I really want to hear both of your responses to this question, because as historians, I'm curious to see how you interpret it. I have my guesses as a children's book author. So I'll back up. When I first started writing this book, I thought, oh, my God, everybody's going to love this. This is going to be incredible. You know, like it sold in a second. My agent was, oh, my God, my publisher. It was just the easiest thing. And I thought, this is great. And then I started taking it out into the space history community, and I started getting this very strange and surprising um, response, which was a knee-jerk impulse of these people to say, those women were never qualified. Those women were a distraction. Those women were delusional. What they tried was silly. What they did didn't matter. And I now, after you know years of hearing that response, I am better equipped to have a conversation that sort of argues that. But I think that there is still this really intense bias to discount the accomplishments of these women based on a standard that is so out of date. We are also so entrenched in our hero worship of these first really incredible aviators who did these amazing things within NASA that it's hard sometimes to make room in that discussion to also say like, well, they benefited from a system that was very much set up to give them a boost and hold others down. But what do you guys think? Well, it's really interesting when you talk about the Mercury 7 and you talk about the hero worship aspect of it, uh, I've had conversations similar to yours, and these were, as you said, kind of all American heroes, but they they weren't by any stretch of the imagination all on the up and up. Many of them had affairs. Some of them were caught having affairs, you know, pictures that almost ran in major newspapers. These were, you know, for, for lack of a better term, playboys, uh, many of them. And that aspect of history uh, you know, the historians, you know, we like to say history with its warts and all doesn't play well to a general audience. Another thing that I know, this actually came from my wife when uh, she was in my office one day and she asked how many books I had by historians who were, were women authors. And at the time, I was really disappointed in the books I had on the shelf. And I made a conscious effort uh, to go out there and do that. And that kind of plays into the Mercury 13. There's, like I said, there's really limited scholarship here. Martha Ackman's The Mercury 13, The True Story of the 13 Women and the Dream of Spaceflight, uh, Margaret Whitecamp's Right Stuff, Wrong Sex, America's First Women in the Space Program. And I get the sense, right or wrong, that that men either don't want to write about this or are traditionally not as good at writing about this, writing outside their comfort zone. So that's my thought. Mike, you got anything? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's been ignored, and certainly I'm I'm glad to see in recent years 
this topic getting a lot more coverage. You know, there's a new Netflix documentary about it. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Dr. Margaret Weidekamp's book, uh, Right Stuff, Wrong Sex, which you just mentioned. She's a colleague of mine and it's it's great work. So it's getting out there. The story is out there. But you're right that like I, as a air power historian that focuses on kind of military stuff and fighter planes and stuff like that, I knew a lot about the Mercury 7 just kind of through osmosis over the years, but I knew very little about the women astronaut program. So maybe part of that is for all the reasons that you're mentioning, maybe part of it is it was so short-lived and they yeah. didn't have the chance to make as big of a mark on history the way that the 7 did through no fault of their own, just because of the structural elements at play. And that actually leads me to a question I had for you, which was, I think you do such a good job of describing those structural elements of like, why, of course, women wouldn't have been qualified for this job because of how women were not allowed into spaces where they could have been qualified. So, of course, that's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. But you also talk about some sort of resistance these women faced from kind of individuals. You talk a little bit about President Lyndon B. Johnson and his feelings towards this program. And you also point out that famed aviator Jackie Cochran, who was partially responsible for funding some of this, is my understanding, also ends up testifying against the program to Congress. So there's a lot of interesting people that were not necessarily supportive of the program, but for different reasons. I'm wondering if you could maybe unpack some of that. So I think a lot of these players that emerge as a supporter and then stop and did an about face I think a lot of that behavior was motivated by politics and the fact that NASA was so new and everything was happening so fast. And there were people who really wanted to be involved and stay involved and stay on the right side of things. So yes, Cochran, Jackie Cochran was this like incredibly famous female aviator. She had come up with Amelia Earhart. You know, she was the first woman to break the sound barrier in a jet. She was this phenom, right? And at the very beginning of the program, she actually agreed to fund it. She had run the WASPs and this looked like the next, you know, big thing. It was going to keep her name in the press and it was going to have her doing what she loved, which is being a leader in the aviation industry. And so she agreed to fund this testing program. And I think her ultimate about face that happened a couple of years later was the result of two things. One, I think she wanted to be involved in the program, not as a supervisor, but I think she actually wanted to go to outer space. She said as much in an interview um, and she was not allowed, you know, she was too old and she was kind of in poor health by that time. But I think the other reason that she chose ultimately to sort of sabotage the whole thing was she could see the writing on the wall. She was a smart woman. She could see that this was not going to be a priority for NASA. And so when um, the rubber hit, met the road and it was time to either side with this program publicly or side with NASA. She sided with NASA. You know, I, I will be perfectly honest in that I was completely unfamiliar uh, with the story of the Mercury 13. I had never heard it. Uh, I had no books on it. And I walked into uh, Professor Deanne Campbell's office up at the Air Force Academy and the book was sitting on her desk and it was like this uh, you know, mind blown cosmic explosion that there was this whole other avenue of uh, historical inquiry uh, that me as a professional historian was not even familiar with. Now, Rebecca, most female pilots struggled to find uh, work and acceptance in the air. But, you know, for a few, being a pilot wasn't enough. And we've already mentioned, you know, the Mercury 7, and we all know these names. Even if we don't follow it closely, Shepard, Grissom, Glenn, Cooper, Slayton, Sherrard, and Carpenter are still, to this day, you know, more or less recognizable names. But uh, some of these names, uh, Jerry Cobb, 
Dietrich, Stedman, Sloan, Funk, they're not. Now tell me why every one of these women should be a household name. I love this question. So, but it's also a complicated one because when you look at the story just at its face value, it's easy to see it as a story of failure, right? These are 13 women who tried to go to outer space and were rejected and then had to go and figure out, you know, something else to do with their lives. So it's tempting to discount their efforts. However, when you are able to take a big step back and look at their story through a wider lens, you can appreciate everything that they went through in their careers to get themselves to that point of participating in astronaut testing, right? So these were not simply hobby pilots. They were flying maniacs, okay? Like these women were flying anything they could get their hands on. They were helicopter pilots. They were flying blimps, gliders. They were flying multi-engine aircraft. They were flying anything they could because A, it was their passion, but B, they were sort of unstoppable, right? And all of this, by the way, was happening at a time when women couldn't like take out a loan on their own without the signature of their husband or dad. And they couldn't get birth control unless a man in their life gave their doctor permission to write that prescription. So the fact that these women were getting into these aircraft, setting aviation records, winning air races was really very extraordinary. Now, on top of that, I think what they really did, the noise that they made and their effort to be recognized as potential astronaut candidates, it might not have worked for them, but it really laid the groundwork for the following astronaut classes. You know, NASA wasn't seriously considering these women, but NASA was very aware of the public image and how it looked to have this group of people making noise that they weren't being included and, you know, that other groups of marginalized people wanted to be involved. So I think that while they weren't successful themselves, they made room for their peers in the future to be successful. Yeah. And that leads into another question. What interaction do these women have uh, later in life uh, with the first women astronaut candidates from the 1978 class? Sure. So the 1978 class is the TFNGs, the 35 new guys. And there were six women that were part of that astronaut class, but all those women were mission specialists. So while the Mercury 13 were thrilled, you know, to see these women finally getting to fly in space. And, you know, I should say um, Janie Hart, one of the Mercury 13, actually went to Sally Ride's launch and, you know, got a little bit of press there. It wasn't until Eileen Collins in 1995 was the first woman to pilot a spacecraft that the Mercury 13 really experienced this very brief but bright time in the spotlight, right? Collins, knew some of the Mercury 13 because she was a 99, 99s. It's an organization for women pilots. And she had met some of these women. And so when she got the chance to become a shuttle pilot, she thanked the Mercury women publicly, which was a big deal. And then she also invited them to her launch. And she brought, you know, some trinkets up with her into space to give to the women. And Collins was really responsible for bringing this story back into the public consciousness. And I should say there's this weird phenomenon that happens with these women that we remember them every eight or 10 years and we talk about them for a little bit and then the public just forgets about them again. It's like for some reason we're not able to appreciate them enough to let them actually just remain in the public consciousness. Um, I'm not really sure why that is. I'm hoping to be able to change that, but it's something that I've noticed. That leads to a question I was going to ask you. I think it's interesting that you've chosen to direct this at the audience that you have, which is 
kind of younger readers. I think you've said like fifth, sixth, seventh grade, somewhere around there. Certainly it would appeal to an adult audience as well, of course. But I guess this is a two-part question, but what made you want to specifically write towards that audience? And then how were you able to take such a complicated and nuanced topic as, you know, structural gender discrimination and make that effective for that age group? Sure. So um, the answer to why I wrote for this audience is very boring. I just have always I've worked in children's publishing for 15 years and I spent the last you know, 10 years of it or so writing and editing books for middle grade readers. So that's just my bread and butter. That's sort of how I think about the world. But in taking something, a story this broad and crafting it into something that would be appropriate for middle grade readers, it's actually it's not that difficult to do audience wise. Of course, you know, when I'm writing for kids, I'm thinking about things like reading level. Reading level comes from like sentence complexity. So sentence length, the type of um, sentence structure, the vocabulary you're using, you want to keep that in mind when you're writing for a specific age level. But mostly what I'm thinking about as a middle grade writer is context. So when I'm writing for grownups, which I don't do very often, I don't worry about background knowledge. I can assume that my reader has a little bit of a toolkit and they will be able to use that to understand my references. So like I could throw out a Cold War reference in an essay for grownups and not have to think twice about it. When I'm writing for kids, I still will throw out the Cold War reference, but I then have to kind of back up and sandwich it in like, by the way, explain what the Cold War is, who was involved in the Cold War, why it matters, give some context for the reference, you know. So it sometimes is a little bit of a um, nuanced dance, like providing that context without really slowing the story down. But I will say, I don't shy away from writing about complicated topics for little kids. Number one, I don't think middle graders are little kids. They're young adults. But more, there's a trend in publishing, like we can tell kids hard things, you know, like kids are equipped and they're interested in difficult topics. And if anything, it's almost our job to tell these things to kids so that they don't make the same bonded mistakes that we Of course, I don't, and especially in this book, I didn't get into some of the explicits. Like I didn't get into the exact speech John Glenn gave when he was mad about the skirt chasing. And I didn't tell all of the racist jokes that Alan Shepard made because it was, we decided like we've given the the general theme. We don't need to really go into more of it. I think, honestly, the biggest challenge with writing this book was that I had 20 protagonists, which was absurd. My poor editor. I want our listeners to know that just because the book is aimed at a younger audience than our typical listening audience, uh, that doesn't mean that the research is not there. And I think you've done a really good job of like digging into the literature. You've got a really good bibliography there. What was your research process like? And did you approach it differently because of the audience? Oh, that's a good question. I I wonder if this will be different from yours as historians. I'm sure it will be. Um, So I found this story I was reading, I think, like a Vice article or something like that back in 2016. My brain exploded. I bought uh, Right Stuff, Wrong Sex, read that. My brain was irreparably damaged at that point. And so I started then just kind of working backwards. So I like started with White Camp's book and then looking through her research sort of worked backwards to find as much information as I could. And then from there, I struggled with how to tell the story in a way that was unique and also um, in a way that would be compelling for middle grade kids. And that's why I ended up going with the dual narratives of the Mercury 7 and the Mercury 13, because as phenomenal as the story of the Mercury 13 is, I think if you are not a space history nut, you might not understand just how enormously impressive what these women did was. You know, I think it's helpful to have the context of what was happening within the male sphere to be able to appreciate the accomplishments that were happening within the female sphere. 
Look, I'll be honest. I read a lot of space books last year, as anyone who follows me on Twitter knows. And, and without fear of hyperbole, uh, Rebecca, your book was absolutely one of my favorite reads from 2020 last year. That makes me very happy. I have some imposter syndrome as a children's book author talking to the two of you. So thank you. Well, we we both have imposter syndrome and and we can tell you honestly, it, it never goes away. No matter who you <laughs> are or what you do, uh, it, it is always there in, in the back of your mind. So true. So true. Yeah. So, you know, and Jerry Cobb is such a, a fascinating character. One of the things that I, I loved about your book and, and any pushback that you get on the possibility of these women being astronauts, it, it's kind of killed for me when you find out that Jerry Cobb flew the the multi-axis space training inertial facility, the Mastiff, and, and did a really good job uh, doing that as well. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Mastiff, it was in the movie First Man. Uh, you saw Neil Armstrong flying it. I mean, a really complicated piece of machinery here. But Rebecca, after these women are flat out denied the opportunity to become astronauts, what becomes of them? Right. So some of the women bounced back quickly. You know, they went right back to their careers in aviation, teaching flight students and selling airplanes. One, Jerry Sloan became a spokeswoman for Lycra, a brand new fabric, and she wore a baby pink Lycra flight suit that matched her pink airplane and like flew it across the country doing promotional work, which is incredible. And, you know, Wally Funk was the youngest of the group and she just kept trying and fact, I would say today Wally has still not stopped trying. She's still ready to go to space. But Jerry Cobb, who had been the ringleader of this group, she had a really hard time when um, the whole program dissolved. And she fought for a couple of years trying to revive it. And when that was clearly not going to happen, Cobb essentially fled to the Amazon jungle. She bought an airplane, flew down and did missionary work for the next 48 years. Okay. She was heartbroken and then ended up coming back to the States. And then if you remember, John Glenn in 1998 got to go up on a shuttle flight as part of a study on spaceflight and age. And as NASA was preparing for that flight, Jerry Cobb had this brief moment of hope, maybe wondering if she might get a chance to go up. Feminist groups in the United States sort of rallied behind her cause. Again, it was that thing where we all of a sudden remembered the story again. And people wrote thousands of letters into NASA asking that Jerry get a spot on a flight. And of course, you know, it didn't happen. John Glenn took that incredible flight and Jerry Cobb stayed on the ground. And, you know, after that, she really began to fade out of the public sphere. She didn't want to do interviews. What's really tragic is if you guys remember the lead up to the all women spacewalk, the first one that didn't happen because of the lack of appropriately sized spacesuits, it was supposed to be Anne McLean and um, Christina Cook, right? Cobb died right before that happened. So it's this sad and also like poetic moment. You know, it almost feels like just another example of women being shortchanged because of, you know, in this case, I truly think it was it was a mistake. I don't think anybody at NASA was trying to make some political statement. I'm sure they were horrified when they realized that the two suits that they had were not adequate for these two female astronauts. But I do think it was this like awful reminder of everything that Jerry Cobb had been through in her life that at this pivotal moment, you know, these two women were shortchanged. So Cobb died without seeing that awesome spacewalk that we then did get to see with Jessica Meir and Christina Cook. And, you know, I think it's really sad. Yeah, absolutely. 
Despite the fact that it may not have worked out for these 13 women in particular, what impact do you think this program had or their stories have had on both the actual spaceflight community, but also in the broader kind of cultural sphere now that they are becoming more well known? Uh, What do you think their legacy is now and, and will be in the future? Sure. So right now, I think their legacy is largely celebrated by female pilots. So within the 99s, this story is very familiar. The 99s know this. Wally Funk is, you know, the hero of the 99s. Among female aviation communities, this is a story that still is very much celebrated. I think among the broader community, as we've discussed, it's if people know anything, they know a very abbreviated and often incorrect version of the story. It's often told that like NASA secretly trained this group of women and they pass their tests and at the last minute, NASA shut it down. And that's, you know, misleading. And it's misleading in a way that's really, it does these women a disservice because then it discounts all the work that they really did do. So I think what I'm hopeful for is that as we move forward, as this story once again comes into daylight, I'm hopeful that we can start to appreciate the effort that these women put in and we can start to see their failure, you know, their lack of achieving this goal as a triumph in itself because of the fact that they got so far, you know, that that the fact that they were actually being discussed in the House of Representatives, a special committee, that the fact that their effort landed them a seat in the vice president's office, you know, like that's pretty significant in a time when women were very much second class citizens. So I hope that we are able soon to look at these women the way that we now look at the women like Katherine Johnson, you know, the hidden figures who did this important work that was unrecognized for a long time and that now we can say like, wow, the work that these people were doing in the shadows was so, so important. And I'm I'm hopeful that that is how we can one day think about the testing and the fighting and the arguing and the work that these women did. That's fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on the show and for writing this book and for doing this effort to take what is happening kind of in the scholarly realm and make it accessible, not just to the public, but to a younger audience. And I think you're building a lot of bridges that are really important. So we appreciate that. I hope so. So again, uh, Rebecca Siegel's book is To Fly Among the Stars, The Hidden Story of the Flight for Women Astronauts. Uh, I think every one of our listeners uh, should go out there and pick up a copy and read it. And when you are done with it, uh, hand it off to uh, your kids to read uh, because it is a fabulous story and hopefully something that you can share with your family, perhaps around uh, the dinner table or your, your family book club, if you will. So, Rebecca, are you on Twitter or online somewhere that we can find you? I am. Rebecca Siegel 14. Uh, that's my Twitter handle. Um, and I'm on Facebook at Becky Siegel. So you can find me and I'm always talking about books. Awesome. Brian? Uh, you can find me at BrianLastly.com and again on Twitter at BrianLastly. And Mike, what about yourself? Well, I'm on Twitter at Hankenstein with a T-I-E-N and I'm on Instagram at HankensMW. All of us are online at BalloonsToDrones.com, of course. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which is on Facebook at DigitalFishMedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email, please visit BalloonsToDrones.com slash contact. And to submit an article for publication on our site, please go to BalloonsToDrones.com slash submissions. Thank you all, and we will see you next time.